I worried about you last night. You shouldn't have run off that way. Well, I, I suddenly felt such a fool. Well, I wanted to drive you home. Are you all right? Oh, yes. Yes, I'm fine. No after effects. But as I remember now, the water was cold, wasn't it? It sure was. What a terrible thing for me to do. You were so kind. It's a, a formal thank you note and a great big apology. Oh, you've nothing to apologize for. Oh, yes, I do. The whole thing must have been so embarrassing for you. Not at all. I enjoyed it. Talking to you. Well, I enjoy talking to you. Well, I'll get the mail. Want to have a cup of coffee? No, no, thank you. Well, I couldn't mail it. I didn't know your address. But I had a landmark. I remembered Coit Tower. Let me straight to you. Well, it's the first time I've been grateful for Coit Tower. I hope we will, too. What? We'll meet again sometime. We have. Yeah, well, don't you think it's kind of a waste for the two of us? To wander separately? Uh -huh. Only one is a wanderer. The two together are always going somewhere. Scott, if your life had a face, I would punch it. Yeah. Wait, what? Let me ask you something. Why would you make the point of saying someone's not a genius? You think I'm especially not a genius? Veronica, why are you pulling my dick? Welcome to another installment of the greatest moments in the history of forever. I'm Zach. I'm Matt. And this is episode number 207, Vertigo. Just going to blow right past the fact that we had one more episode planned for 2020. Didn't make it. Well, this was it. Okay, I know. <laughs> <laughs> and there was going to be a break during this week, so... It all worked out. Yeah. Now there won't be a break. That's we'll right. We'll be back next week. I do enjoy doing the show in the sense that it, it does make me revisit some of these older movies. Although I only saw Vertigo for the first time like a couple of years ago. But I, it was included in that Alfred Hitchcock box set, which I did as a recommendation on the show. It's a great movie. The funny part is you realize all these movies from your life <laughs> that you saw in like the 90s or whatever are actually like referencing this movie. Oh, yeah. Basic definitely. Instinct certainly comes to mind for me. The influence of Hitchcock over virtually everything that you see is yeah. immeasurable, really. So, okay, before we jump into Vertigo, let's do a little 
housekeeping. So oh, yeah. instead of ending 2020 on New Year's Eve, we're a few days late. It's so okay. we're already into 2021. But here are some things you can look forward to. Yes. There will be more give us a seconds eventually. We know it's been a long time. People are like, I don't know if he knows what we look forward to. Well, I'm just saying there will be more. There will be more television-based episodes. I know we haven't done one since Bug Juice. That was a long time ago, like the beginning of August. Yeah. People just like, how could you just leave us hanging on TV after that great Bug Juice episode? There will probably not be any more on the records. <laughs> Anytime soon. <laughs> oh, wow. Soon. I really thought we were going to come back and do that one that came like right down to the wire, and then we ended up not doing it. Someday, but not anytime soon. Not in 2021. And we've also got some big surprises lined up for some new wrinkles in the show that hopefully people enjoy. Yeah. That's all I'm going to say on that right now, but you'll see, <laughs> you'll see what we mean. Yeah, oh, and maybe tease, little tease, maybe some audio commentaries are going to be thrown in there. Oh no. <laughs> some people seem to like them. Other I, people, not so much. I'd rather do it on the record. I think. No. Okay. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> so anyway, Follow the show on Twitter, at Greatest Pod. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Podbean. Continue to spread the word. Yeah, I- I'm blown away by the amount of traction we're getting on the reviews now. I mean, you asked for it, and they came. Yeah, we're sort of baffled by how positive the reviews are. They almost uh, seem shocking, like they belong yeah. to a different podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it's humbling, but it makes it all seem worth it yeah we have to dedicate so much of our lives i, to I mean I, I said it to you and i do kind of feel this way like we, we found our people a little bit i think it's mostly probably dudes in their 40s but that's our target demo yeah i guess <laughs> <laughs> anybody anybody yeah, with no, ears no, should I, be yeah, our target I, demo. I would say we cater to the entire family <laughs> so this is a big one i guess we've only done one other Hitchcock movie on the podcast that was Rear Window, which is probably my favorite Hitchcock movie. Yeah, it is awesome. Of the four that came in that box, that that's the only one that I haven't watched the 4K of yet, and I think mostly just because I had watched it most recently out of all four. <laughs> but it, it's on, I love getting these updates on what you've watched from a box. <laughs> it's on my to-do list. That's on my 2021 goals. But I would say Vertigo for me is right up there as one of my favorites. And there are a lot of things to say about this movie. And it's probably one of the most talked about, discussed, debated films of all time, which we will sort of touch on that here in a minute as to what exactly is going on with this movie's legacy and why has it changed so much and increased in terms of popularity and recognition Wild. So long after it was originally released. Yeah, I know. Such a wild swing for the story. I, I don't know. For this time period, you just don't feel like you were seeing people take this type of swing with the story. Vertigo was released in 1958. It was directed and produced by Alfred Hitchcock. Screenplay by Alec Koppel and Samuel A. Taylor. Based on the 1954 novel, D'Entre les Morts which means From Among the Dead Ooh. by Boilu and Narsajak, which are actually two different people. They sort of used a pen name that combined their last names, I guess. Okay. And they had famously written the novel that became Les Diaboliques, oh, which was directed Criterion, by right? Clouseau, which Hitchcock had wanted to do that. I see. And didn't get it. And so the rights for this novel were basically his before it was even released. It was one of those deals. Yep, like he yep. wanted to get his hands on it. 
The film stars James Stewart and Kim Novak. I guess in terms of its legacy, we'll start here. In 1997, on the AFI Top 100 list, it was ranked number 61. But in 2007, it jumped all the way to number 9. Wow. This was by far the most dramatic change in the list. And in 2012, the British Film Institute's Sight and Sound Critics poll had Vertigo now as the greatest film ever made, overtaking Citizen Kane, which had been the number one film in all of the previous lists. This is something they do every decade, every 10 years, starting in 1952. So we're basically a year away from another Sight and Sound list. So why? Why did this movie become... (laughs) considered among the greatest films ever made when if you go back 15 years ago it was just considered like a strong Hitchcock movie and I think there's probably a few reasons why one is that there's a lot of layers to the film and so people especially critics love talking about it and discussing it yeah it does seem like there's some different takes out there I guess there's a lot of material in the movie so therefore a lot of things to interpret there's the surface level story of a policeman forced into early retirement who gets sucked into this wife-murdering plot that's very elaborate and whatnot. That's like the surface level. And then there's the more base, emotional, psychological level. This film is very interior, which is something that wasn't as common in 1958, where you have to sort of understand these characters' emotions without them saying it all the time. And you have to actually think about it and figure it out rather than just seeing it on screen. Yeah, right. There's almost like a character study element to it with at least the main dude, if not a couple of the other characters. Yeah, so Vertigo definitely emphasizes guilt and obsession. And there's this traumatic event that Jimmy Stewart's character, Scotty, holds this tremendous amount of guilt over. And then the idea of distracting oneself with an intense obsession is something that was pretty new for people. So that's the second. When we uh, get to the the second half of the movie, the Scotty character, when he starts doing all of these things to try to recreate these moments, I I was having like this pretty big moment of (laughs) self-reflection in my life. And like, I think some of the lessons are like why this isn't a good idea, why you shouldn't act like this. Except like the, the people that were involved in your things that you were recreating, weren't dead they just never wanted to talk to you or no i there was like one good moment that i had with a girl to like a whitney houston song so then after that i was always trying to like recreate that with the same whitney houston song somehow even more (laughs) pathetic the third layer to vertigo would be the fairly common and replicated story of loss of a loved one of someone that you have these strong feelings for and then delving into the underworld of life to try to bring that person back bring them back to life through memory through recreation etc that's right but the thing that i think jumps out the most to people and why critics feel smart (laughs) to talk about this stuff is that it's a very meta take on hitchcock's own life and his own fetishization and obsession with blondes and women and maybe the the way that he was trying to control them it's interesting now because there is two movies There's two different Hitchcock movies out there, one with Anthony Hopkins, and I think one with, I can't remember the guy's name that plays him in the other one, but they're both basically about the same thing. I mean, it's basically about how he would control these 
blonde actresses that he cast in these roles. According to IMDb, Vertigo is about a former police detective who juggles wrestling with his own personal demons while becoming obsessed with a hauntingly beautiful woman. The initial reactions to Vertigo were very mixed and not super great. Hitchcock blamed the underwhelming box office and the bad reviews on the age gap between Stewart and Novak. He thought that Stewart looked too old and then never worked with him again after having used him plenty of times before. And at a certain point, I believe in the 1960s, so more or less within a decade of the film's release, Vertigo went out of circulation and was basically unavailable to see until the mid-1980s after Hitchcock died. It was one of five films that he bequeathed the rights to to his daughter. Rear Window was another. Oh, yeah. Rope, I think. The Trouble with Harry. I forget all. But anyway, once she got them restored and then re-released back into theaters, I think there was a couple of different re-releases later. Then all of a sudden, this movie found a second life. There was a huge critical reevaluation, which seems to still be like ongoing. And now it's considered one of his masterpieces. And yet it is somehow at the same time, like unlike all of his other films. And yet I think in a way his most Hitchcockian film. Sure. It's yeah. somehow both. Yeah. Also the movie poster, I feel like pops up more and more. It's definitely been used in shows and it has like a famous look to it. Yeah, I don't know what it is. There's just a different vibe to this movie than a lot of his other films, even though there are things about it that are very familiar. The scope of it seems a lot larger, too, because they're actually like driving around a city a lot. I think you get used to a lot of his movies having that like soundstage feel. Yeah. It almost feels like there's more action in it, too, than a lot of his movies. Yeah, and going along with what you're saying, I think Vertigo is sort of the ultimate san francisco film it's a very romanticized look at this city during the 1950s and that's what's funny about it because when you compare it to rear window in new york city it's very contained within like the courtyard yes of like these apartments but this is like a sprawling view of san francisco it's absolutely stunning looking from the very beginning the Bernard Herman score is, of course, unforgettable, just oh, like yeah. all of them, all of his collaborations with Hitch. I would say definitely inspired future scores for Hitchcockian-type movies. I think as far as its influence on other filmmakers, the use of color in this movie is not only so effective, but also readily apparent that most audiences, I don't think, need to be studying it too hard to pick up on some of it it's not super subtle (laughs) or anything like that it's very in your face but not in a way that's like obnoxious it it makes you feel like you're in on it rather than you're being like separated from some geniuses i would agree complex idea where you're kind of on the outside looking in it's like you're drawn into it into her spell that she casts that's right when you do take a step back you're like this story is insane the scheme is the story is ludicrous you're never you're certainly never completely pulled out of it but when you you do take a step back you're like wait this was the plan yeah i think the power with vertigo comes from the artistic achievement more so than the plot or the story because when you start to peel away the story you're like this seems completely insane there are a lot of loose ends 
which is rare yeah. for Hitchcock. Usually he would twist that plot so tight right. that it would be hard to like poke holes in it. But there are a lot of things in this movie where you're I, like, that doesn't quite make sense or yeah. add up. And I could see that as being one of more the main reason for some of the, the lack of a positive response initially, because I do think that you could walk out of this movie the first time feeling like kind of unresolved. Yeah, and I think it bothered Hitchcock that this film did not go over well. And unlike today, where even if a film is poorly reviewed or if it bombs at the box office, if it's got something, there will inevitably be an online following and you will start to see something develop a cult audience very shortly after its release. It in nineteen fifty eight there was Yeah, there was it was it. It was like he was upset about this and this is still pre psycho and so there are still a lot of heavy hitters left in his career, sure. but this was definitely a screwball out of nowhere when things were going great and then this one just doesn't land the right way and doesn't find its audience as quickly and I think people sort of just didn't understand it. Yeah. And I mean look, he was eventually proven right. So let's start with the opening credits. Very memorable. There's this dreamy music and the close-ups of the woman's face with the names kind of on her face at different points, and it focuses on her mouth and then her eyes. I think very much like the eyes are the window of the soul. And then there's like those odd colors swirling around. Oh, yeah. I would say colors play a pretty big part in the movie. The one thing that I kept thinking of throughout the movie is especially this and then the, the dream sequence later when Scotty has his breakdown. The colors almost foretell like a more psychedelic era that had not happened yet. That's true. And so it seems very before its time. Pre-60s. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely, it jumps out at you as seeming like very strange and different from what you would expect. Drug use was on the rise. <laughs> the opening shot of the film is that tight close-up of the bar on that ladder right before right. the guy's hand latches onto it to lead into that rooftop chase. <laughs> You're like, well, okay, what is the crime here? Like, what happened? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it's a crazy... We have, like, basically a street cop, it seems like. You know, somebody who just walks the beat every day of San Francisco. And then this detective in a fucking full-on foot chase climbing up ladders on skyscrapers. Well, I don't think there's yeah, skyscrapers, <laughs> but yeah. Maybe a slight exaggeration. Martin Scorsese says he was a huge fan of this film. He considers it one of his favorite, and he tried to replicate this opening shot in Raging Bull with oh, the yeah. ring ropes. In this, though, it's part of a ladder. Leads to this rooftop chase, the San Francisco twilight. I was struck by how great this looks. It makes San Francisco look like almost a... I don't know, like a world from a fantastical place. Like, almost not real. It does seem dreamy. I could only imagine what this opening sequence on these rooftops looked like in the theaters in 1958. And that makes it even harder to believe that there were critics and audiences that weren't super into the movie. I feel like just the look of this movie is enough to capture the imagination, even if you had a hard time with the plot. Yeah, I'd say so. If the plot was a little more advanced and sort of abstract than what people were used to at the time. Yeah, I mean, they're driving all over the place. You you see a bunch of, like, the ocean, the Golden Gate Bridge. At some point, they drive out to, like, Mere Woods. So you see a lot of the San Francisco area. Yeah, and it all looks stunning. Yeah, yeah. Especially in the new 4K restorations. But even at the time, like, seeing this in the theater, 
you're just sort of transitioning from predominantly black and white films into color more often. I just think that it would I know really implant on people's brains. It it's feels like amazing to look at. The scope of this seemed a lot larger than what I would have pictured movies being at the time. It just feels like you're kind of hauling a lot of equipment around to get a lot of these like on location shots. Detective John Scotty Ferguson, played by Stewart, almost falls from one of these rooftops. <laughs> Just He's a poor attempt at a jump. Hanging on to a gutter that seems like it's about to break. Yeah, they'll, several uh, stories up. They'll ask you to suspend your disbelief a couple times in this movie. This is number one for me. It just seems like impossible that he's surviving this. A fellow policeman attempts to save him and accidentally falls to his death. Yeah. While Scotty continues to hang there. And then I guess this is kind of like a famous shot from this movie, this this camera trick that they'll use again later at the bell tower. Vertigo is the first ever film to use the dolly zoom and in-camera effect that distorts perspective to create disorientation. And it's used here to convey Scotty's acrophobia, which means fear of heights and feelings of vertigo. The other most famous use of the dolly zoom is in Jaws when they zoom in on Brody's face after the shark attack on the beach. But this was the first time it was used in a film and it became known as sort of like the vertigo effect. But I don't think Hitchcock himself created it. I think it was one of the other people, like the second unit director or somebody. Either way, if I experienced this, I feel like I would certainly be falling to my death after this. <laughs> if I looked down and I had that happen, yeah, I, I think well, I'd be you could land on the policeman. That's yeah. already <laughs> break your fall a little bit. But this is an interesting start to the film because it's not what you would expect. And I think the casting of Stewart is very intentional, even if... Hitchcock later regretted it because he very much was casting against type on purpose. He wanted the all-American wholesome guy to not be the hero. And this opening sequence, it's like, well, this is a non-heroic character. The heroic character is the one that tried to help him and died. Yeah. He's basically living with his shame at living through this experience. Yeah, and it's interesting because I would say he's very much the hero of the film, but not very heroic throughout. Yeah, he's a non-heroic character in a non-heroic narrative who acts in a way that in 2021 doesn't seem necessarily super scandalous, but he's making out with a woman he thinks is married. He's right. basically falling in love with her. Yeah. He's not a great guy. I would say his moral compass is skewed. After this incident, Scotty retires from the force due to his newly realized fear of heights. Somehow, he's 50 years old, yeah. it seems like, and... Well, this, didn't know that this was a thing. If you didn't have it before, I feel like this could bring it on, certainly. Yeah, and that's kind of what they're implying, that this traumatic event is sort of leading to this. But I don't know. He was, like, freaking out before the guy actually fell. That's true. But then again, when he was running on the roof, it wasn't a big deal until he was, like, hanging desperately yeah. for his life. How long was he hanging from this gutter that didn't look like it was supporting itself very well? Who knows? The only thing you can think of is that somebody had to have come along and <laughs> the criminal came back, <laughs> <laughs> or they put out like one of those giant air mattress things that he could like fall <laughs> into. I don't know if they had that in 1958. Yeah. <laughs> Scotty now seems somewhat aimless, spending a lot of time with his ex-fiance Midge, oh, who is an Midge. underwear designer of yeah. all things. It's a pretty cool job. Yeah, and I think 
what you're supposed to take away from their interactions early in the film and their sort of clinical discussion of bras and all of that stuff is that it's like very sanitized. Right. And, not, and he's not sexy. Like he's not into her. Like she doesn't have that appeal. Yeah. It's very distant. And of course, Midge is like the tragic yeah. figure of Vertigo, really just embarrassing. Which if I relate to any female character in a movie ever, it's got to be Midge. Midge reminds me of Kim from Scott Pilgrim versus the oh, world yeah. in a way yeah. where the focus of this movie it has nothing to do with this past relationship yet there's just so much there's some stuff hanging on sadness yeah. hanging around <laughs> Midge tells Scotty that another severe emotional shock may be the only cure because as we're going to find out here when Scotty tries to cure his own acrophobia by stepping up on that stepladder he accidentally looks out the window. Yeah, the vertigo comes back, and he collapses into Midge's arms. Although I like, <laughs> which it seemed insane that she'd be able to catch him. He looks like so tall, <laughs> and he just looks like he's like falling. Well, he's like, not dead completely weight. unconscious. Yeah. He's just so weak. Yeah. <laughs> I did like his idea though, just trying to like go step by step. I'm like, yeah, I can buy this. This seems like it'll work. Out of the blue, Scotty is contacted by an old acquaintance from college named Gavin Elster. What a villain he just seems like from the beginning. <laughs> it's hard to look at these two and be like, yeah, they were in college ever. They both seem insanely old to me. Yeah. And I don't know if they're trying to make us believe that Scotty went to college at the same time as Midge. They don't look very close in age No, either. They I, look it, a little more appropriate like... than Kim Novak, but yeah. not much. I got the sense that when they were together, it was when they were in school. Oh, yeah, they'd right. say that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know why they're trying to pass that off on us. I know, it's it nuts. It doesn't seem believable. It's kind of like It's a Wonderful Life where he's like... <laughs> yeah. You know, he's playing somebody who's like 40 years old, By but the then way. also he's in college when yeah. he's 40. They were playing It's a Wonderful Life on Christmas. I watched it three or four times, <laughs> teared up like every time. Such a great movie. It is a good movie. That's why we did it on the show. That's right. Gavin asks Scotty... To follow his wife, Madeline. Well, first, it's kind of like, what's up, man? So he does know that this thing happened, and he's retired from being a detective. Although, I guess Scotty kind of talks about this. He is somewhat independently wealthy or something. Like, he doesn't need to work anymore. Yeah, I don't know. That's not really important. He's I, just well, kind of hanging around, not doing anything. Yeah, good for him. Some life. <laughs> well, he's 50 years old. Maybe not in the movie, but yeah. it's hard to get over that fact. So it seems like... I think you probably could retire that early as a cop. Okay. If you put in like 30 years Fair. on the force, I think you can kind of take a punch in or something. All right. doesn't really need to be explained. It's just sort of odd that Gavin comes into his life at this moment, Yeah. brings up the incident, knows that he's retired, but then is like, hey, could you follow my wife? She's <laughs> she's kind of in this fragile mental state. It's deteriorating, and she could maybe be in danger. I aspire to get to fifty and have like nothing to do. I mean, well, we're I not that far most away people from do. it. <laughs> it was a different time. Yeah, I know. <laughs> they weren't like saddled with student loan debt and credit card debt. <laughs> Just was different. That's true. There was there wasn't any Blu-rays to buy. I asked you to come up here, Scotty knowing that you'd quit detective work. But I wondered whether you'd go back on the job as a special favor to me. I want you to follow my wife. No, it's not that. We're very happily married. 
Well, then... I'm afraid some harm may come to her. From whom? Someone dead. Scotty, do you believe that someone out of the past, someone dead, can enter and take possession of a living being? No. If I told you that I believe this has happened to my wife, what would you say? Well, I'd say take her to the nearest psychiatrist or psychologist or neurologist or psycho or maybe just the plain family doctor. I'd have him check on you, too. Then you're of no use to me. I'm sorry I wasted your time. Thanks for coming in, Scotty. Okay. I, uh... I didn't mean to be that rough. No, it sounds idiotic, I know. And you're still the hard-headed Scott, aren't you? Always were. You think I'm making it up? No. I'm not making it up. <laughs> I wouldn't know how. She'll be talking to me about something. Suddenly, the words fade into silence. A cloud comes into her eyes, and they go blank. She's somewhere else, away from me, someone I don't know. I call to her. She doesn't even hear me. Then, with a long sigh, she's back. Looks at me brightly. Doesn't even know she's been away. Can't tell me where or when. Well, how often does this happen? More and more in the past few weeks. And she wanders. God knows where she wanders. I followed her one day. Watched her coming out of the apartment. Someone I didn't know. She even walked a different way. Got into her car and drove out to Golden Gate Park, five miles. Sat by the lake, staring across the water at the pillars that stand on the far shore, you know, portals of the past. Sat there a long time without moving. I had to leave, get back to the office. When I got home that evening, I asked her what she'd done all day. She said she'd driven out to Golden Gate Park and sat by the lake, that's all. Well? The speedometer on her car showed that she'd driven 94 miles. Where did she go? I've got to know, Scotty, where she goes and what she does before I get involved with doctors. Well, have you talked to the doctors at all about that? Yes, but carefully. I want to know more before committing her to that kind of care. Scotty. All right, I'll get you a firm of private eyes follower for you. They're dependable, good boys. I want you. Look, this isn't my line. Scotty, I need a friend. Someone I can trust. I'm in a panic about this. I'm supposed to be retired. I don't want to get mixed up in this darn thing. Look, we're going to an opening of the opera tonight. We're dining at Ernie's first. You can see her there. It doesn't take very long, though, in his spiel for Gavin to bring up this supernatural spin where he's talking about a person out of the past possessing his wife and taking control of, over her. Yeah, and Scott is really not buying it. He's not, and he's reluctant to help, but Gavin's hitting like this whole thing like, well, I, I don't want a stranger. I trust you since we know each other. I want to keep this hush-hush before I have m more information. Basically, I'm going to be willing to get her mental help, although in those days 
it is as bleak as like I'm gonna throw her in an institution is basically really what he's yeah implying. either like some sort of shock therapy <laughs> or like locked in a padded cell and never let out <laughs> yeah like Alexis Bledel in right. Mad Men yes <laughs> I'm just gonna shock this out of her yeah you won't remember me she's a wanderer he tells Scotty Scotty doesn't really want to get involved well wouldn't you be like all right this sounds weird but it is sort of intriguing. It's hard to really know what the upside for helping would be other than he just has nothing else to do. Yeah. And you so know, he has some sort of moral obligation to help a friend in his mind or something. I've often considered retiring and, you know, moonlighting as a private investigator. It would be great, except I really wouldn't know how to do anything that they Yeah, do that's in true. These as soon as like you got into like a somewhat sketchy situation i wouldn't even be able to get into the sketchy situation i wouldn't know the first step i'd be like i don't know what to do (laughs) i know but i'm thinking that like we could somehow like spin spin a podcast off of it too like our careers as my whole career as a private investigator would just be googling things (laughs) (laughs) although you're pretty good at that i don't know so gavin's like hey all right we're gonna go to this place called ernie's why don't you just show up and take a look and see and that way you can see what she looks like and you can decide. I mean, it's, yeah. it is really that direct. Putting the like, bait on the hook. Yeah. And so reluctantly, Scotty goes to Ernie's. And this is the first time we see Gavin with Madeline. And Madeline is beautiful. Oh, stunning. In a way that's actually sort of hard to convey. Yeah. <laughs> she's blonde. She's wearing this very vibrant green dress. She looks like a million bucks. Yeah. Just looks like a figure of power. It is strange to me, though, that Hitchcock, in his sort of anger at the reception to this film, focused on the age gap, because at no time in this movie do you feel like Kim Novak is 24 or 5. I do not, no. You just don't. It's not that she looks old, really, but she just doesn't seem young either. She's mature in a way that 25-year-olds are not now. Yeah. I would say that significant age gaps between love interests in movies is something that exists today and does not prohibit them from being successful. Yeah, and in a way, if you do notice it, it can almost enhance the the story. Sure. Because it makes him seem even more pathetic and more likely to get wrapped around her finger and become obsessed, which is sort of what happens. His obsession then ties in with lost youth, too. I think it just kind of helps it along. It makes it seem even more believable in a way. I think there just is this male fantasy to get caught up in one of these situations with one of these just nuts chicks. Yeah, he's 50 years old. He knows that his life at best is half over. Right. At best. Yeah, probably not that. It's probably closer to two-thirds over. And so... Yeah, there is that sort of desperation to have one last adventure, one last fantasy. He's one not married. Run. Right. So what's the harm other than, you know, it is supposedly his friend's wife. Yeah. So Scotty follows Madeline, and this next sequence of the film is this long, dreamy time driving oh, yeah. through the streets of San Francisco. Following her around. The cars that they're in seem to be almost floating on air. It's yeah. like this very like smooth. Well, she's got like the emerald green car to match the dress. Yeah, and there's lighter music in the score. It's almost playful at weird times during this whole thing. Madeline first buys a bouquet from a florist. Then she visits the grave of a woman named Carlotta oh, yeah. Valdez. Should be pointed out, 
this is some life this woman is living. Because <laughs> apparently there's kind of a routine to this all, right? She hits a lot of the same stops. Carlotta lived from 1831 to 1857. So the connection between Carlotta and this Madeline woman is unknown. She died 100 years before. We don't know what's going on. But Madeline provides the ultimate distraction for Scotty. And this is important because so much of Vertigo is internal and not explicit, as I stated earlier. Scotty is guilt-stricken, depressed, ashamed. But these things are all things you need to figure out on your own. Oh, sure. They don't really spend a lot of time telling you that. That's just... Yeah, and he doesn't really like reveal it in conversations with some of the characters that he's talking to, particularly Midge, who gives him some opportunities to reveal things about how he's feeling. He's very closed off emotionally to yeah, Midge, yeah. and that's what the whole point of her and him talking about bras and the mechanics of bras and it being so like devoid of eroticism. Yeah. But like when no he has there. this object of desire in Madeline that he can project things onto, he's completely different. Yeah. And this silence, because a lot of this section of the film is silent, is where you're supposed to sort of understand him and the sadness in his life, his shame at what happened. And now he has this convenient distraction. Well, there's definitely like this slow burn to how this all plays out. I think, isn't this movie under two hours? It's like 208. 208, okay. But it feels like they fit a lot of scenes into it. Yeah. Scotty falling in love immediately with a woman he's never heard speak well you understand that is a diversion from the disaster of his real life and the fact that she's acting in this puzzling manner is just a bonus because it just gives him more to think about that isn't what happened before yeah and and right now he was hired to do this yeah so he's still like treating it like it's a job although it does seem clear like pretty quickly that he's personally invested in this we know he's an easy mark pretty early on, but it becomes more and more apparent as things go on. Yeah, just actually, how al- easy of a mark. Almost he is. sadly so. Hitchcock uses green to both signify something or someone otherworldly or uncanny, and that's because in stage productions, green mist and green light was always used for ghosts and stuff okay. like that. But also in association with Kim Novak's character, the dress the first time she's on screen at Ernie's. Her car. Later, Scotty's sweater will be green when he's wrapped up in his obsession with her. And there's so many other instances of green. We'll point some of them out as we go. But green is something that I associate with vertigo a lot. I'd say so. (laughs) And I think as far as Hitchcock's films go, it might be the most vibrant use of color. I would say so. At least out of the ones I've seen. I haven't seen every single one. Yeah. A lot of them are black and white. Madeline then goes to the Legion of Honor Art Museum where she sits and stares at a portrait of a woman. The woman in the painting is holding a bouquet of flowers nearly identical to the one that Madeline bought, and her hair is also styled the same way as Madeline's. Yeah, kind of a weird move that part of her routine is to just go look at this artwork every day. Now, obviously, we know it's tying in with the Carlotta thing, but it does seem weird that this would just be part of your day-to-day life. Scotty finds out that the name of the painting is Portrait of Carlotta. And then this sequence, I can't help but be reminded of the art museum sequence from Dress to Kill. Yeah, that's right. One of the most famous sequences from any Brian De Palma movie, who seemed to do a lot of straight Hitchcockian work. 
Yeah. I think when we did the film Dress to Kill, we talked about how De Palma always sort of saw it as working within a genre, which was just like the Hitchcock genre. Now, you wouldn't necessarily compare all of his films to Hitchcock, but he definitely dabbled in that area. For sure. Like, I don't think you would think that like Scarface or Carrie or something like that. But That's true. Dress to Kill, Body Double, you know, there's a lot where it dabbles in that arena. Yeah. Finally... Scotty watches Madeline enter the McKittrick Hotel, but upon investigating, she does not seem to actually be there, which is never really explained in the movie. I was going to say, what happens here? I think it's just sort of a a trick that they're playing on him on purpose, where yeah, there is sort she of probably this... had a copy made of that key so that the woman at the desk doesn't think she's there. True. She sneaks out a back door when they go up. Something like that. I mean, it's explainable, but they just don't yeah. do it in the movie. I mean, they are throwing things at you, I feel like, just to keep you off balance, too. Yeah. And him. Through Midge, Scotty meets a local historian who explains that Carlotta Valdez committed suicide. She had once been the mistress of a wealthy married man and bore his child. The otherwise childless man kept the baby but cast Carlotta aside. This is how sad Midge's life is. She's, like, investigating this stuff for Scotty. Well, all she did was provide a name when he asked a simple question about True. local history. Carlotta then devolved into madness and eventually committed suicide. Upon hearing this story, Scotty's obsession with Madeline seems to grow, and it's sort of reminiscent of a festering infection more than natural love or something like that it's something almost like sinister where he's sort of amping himself up it is funny that like when they were trying to come up with a title for the film i think somebody joked and threw out like to lay a ghost (laughs) and hitchcock himself even joked that the movie was about a man who wants to go to bed with a ghost they were like very fixated on that idea and i think had there not been such strict censorship rules there would be like more of a horniness element to it. Sure. Instead, they I think sort it still of have comes to cross. Yeah, they have to kind of like dance around it and masquerade it as love. He's and... definitely got this raging passion that was not <laughs> present when Madeline wasn't around. Well, yeah, but that's the thing. You use the word passion, not boner. Because <laughs> well, we all knew what I meant. <laughs> I think that's what it is. He's yeah. just like, God damn this chick. Yeah. And yeah, Kim Novak is stunning in this movie. Oh, sure. In a way that is like... There was almost like a thickness there that wasn't quite as popular in the late 50s <laughs> as it is today. Yeah, she looks really good in that gray suit that she's oh, walking yeah, around with. No right. wonder he needs to buy that like later <laughs> in the movie. He's just like, good lord. I need a copy of one of these. <laughs> this was like the 1958 equivalent of the wet-ass pussy music video. I'd say so. <laughs> was Vertigo. Yeah. Yeah, Kim at Novak point, was like the Cardi B of the uh, late 50s. Of her time, yeah. yeah. At one point, you see a copy of Swank magazine just out on his oh, coffee yeah. table. Yeah, which, oh, he's a dog. De- definitely don't. And I was making the joke right before we started recording where he's like looking at that painting of Carlotta and then remembering her face. And I'm like, that's basically the equivalent of 1958 internet porn. It's like he can't, there's nothing yeah. else. It was a to simpler time. At. You have to look at a painting and then imagine what your beloved's face looks like. <laughs> beloved. It took, you know, four hours to jack off. Yeah, it well, was a whole process. There was a lot more time to kill, though. 
Scotty meets with Gavin again, who reveals that Madeline is the great-granddaughter of Carlotta Valdez. Once we get further into the movie, you are just, what the fuck is going on with Gavin? How did he spin this all together? Once you know the ending of the film and you're re-watching this movie, this scene seems ridiculous. Yet, the first time you watch it, I guess you're not questioning every single moment as hard as you should be. So it kind of passes by you. But yeah, he's always re-emphasizing things to make sure Scotty picked up on it. Even though Scotty did pick up on all this stuff, he's like, notice how her hair is the same as the picture. (laughs) Notice the jewelry. She has the same jewelry. Notice the flowers. Yeah, it's like, like, are you starting to buy my narrative that Madeline is being possessed? Oh yeah, the McKittrick Hotel. That's where Carlotta used to live. (laughs) And then conveniently... Madeline is unaware of her own connection to Carlotta. Somehow her husband knows that this was her great-grandmother, but she doesn't know. Yeah. And unprompted, I guess, as this movie goes along, Scotty never really questions the Gavin thing. Not really. Because he's so distracted. (laughs) It's wrapped up in something else. He's like, yeah, okay. I'm going to try to fuck your wife. (laughs) (laughs) Gavin fears that it is Carlotta who is possessing Madeline, as if that wasn't obvious as to what they were pushing. And he does really hit home and emphasize the suicide stuff here. Almost like to the point where like, okay, you're saying it too much. Yeah, like, yeah. we know. <laughs> you need to let him come to his own conclusions right. sometimes. <laughs> so Scotty tells Madeline once again, and it's the same stops as before, except this time she ends up driving to Fort Point, where she then leaps into the San Francisco Bay. Scotty then dives in after her, rescuing her. Yeah, which... I guess it all kind of fits into the plan, so that's fine. I feel like, I guess he has no explanation here. He just happened to randomly stumble upon this, but it also is like, okay, this is going to make tailing her a lot harder. Yeah, and also... And it does when he tails her to his house. (laughs) What happens when he doesn't jump in and save her? Then she's got to just like get out and be like, well, this was a failure. (laughs) (laughs) She was like, you picked the wrong guy. It's really unclear what even happens here, especially when you learn the truth. She just seems like unconscious and he, she's like dead weight when he's putting her in the car to drive her back to his apartment. And again, I mean, you can just get into the whole thing of like, well, he's distracted. He's buying whatever. Really hard for me to believe that this was a suicide attempt. She jumps like from five feet of elevation into the water. Right. But it's just supposed to plant a seed and. Yeah, I guess you could be like, well, she's unstable. Why would someone do this? Well, one of the things that we talked about before recording, and this is sort of the whole key of the movie, is that this plan is so insane (laughs) that why would he ever jump to these conclusions? And in 1958, he would probably think it is more likely that she's being possessed by a ghost than would be involved in something this insane, this plot that they've come up with. Well, I guess there there certainly wasn't as many like scams going on and if there were, you weren't aware of them. Well, they certainly weren't this elaborate. No. This complicated. And he really doesn't have any reason to believe that this would be fake. Now, I don't know that he necessarily believes that there's a ghost involved or anything, but I just don't know that he would jump to the conclusion that he's being tricked into something. Because from his perspective at this point, what would that possibly be? Well, he certainly doesn't spend a lot of time talking about the Carlotta stuff. <laughs> he's just like into madeline oh yeah scotty brings a completely out of it madeline back to his apartment and i guess takes off all of her clothes something she wakes he's up not afraid to admit naked in his bed 
while her clothes are drying. So this was very strange because I was like I trying to imagine that scenario. I mean, pneumonia, a serious concern in the 50s. <laughs> it's actually almost creepier that he's like, yeah, I tried to dry your hair. I know. That is weird. <laughs> I feel like if she wasn't part of a, a scheme, I think that part would have been kind of what turned her away from this. Her mind would be like imagining herself laying on top of his bed, on top of the blankets, like completely naked. Well, he's like slowly and lovingly drying her hair. I know you touched on this a little bit, but just how unbelievable that she's been unconscious this entire time. Yeah, from what? It doesn't <laughs> yeah. even make sense. <laughs> and is she pretending? Well, that's a possibility. To be unconscious. Yeah, and no reaction. You... I mean, she gets an Academy Award for no reaction to him <laughs> taking off her clothes and trying to blow dry her hair or whatever. <laughs> blow dry. Yeah, her, blow I, dry with his mouth. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you fell into San Francisco Bay. You know, I, I uh, tried to dry your hair as best I could. Your things are in the kitchen. They'll be dry in a few minutes. Come on over by the fire. Here, I'll give you some cushions. Coffee? Well, here you better have some. Or, or perhaps you'd like a drink. I fell into the bay and you fished me out. That's right. Thank you. You don't remember? No, I. You remember where you were? Oh, yes. Yes, of course I remember that. Then I, I must have had a dizzy spell and fainted. Where were you? At Old Fort Point. Out of the Presidio. Of course I remember. I often go there. Why? Why, why do you go there? Because I, I love it so. It's beautiful there. Especially at sunset. Thank you for the fire. Where were you before? When? This afternoon, I mean. Wandering about? I know, but where? Where were you just before? Downtown shopping. Here, you better have some coffee. I think it's still warm. You're terribly direct in your questions. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to be rude. You're not. You're merely direct. And what were you doing there at Old Fort Point? Oh, just wandering about. Oh, you like it too? Yes. And where had you been just before? I'd been to the Palace of the Legion of Honor, the art gallery. Oh, yes. It's a lovely spot, isn't it? Never been inside, but it looks so lovely driving past. So we're about one third of the way through the film the first time we hear her voice, and Madeline's voice is completely insane. I love it. 
It's so sexy. Sultry. And yet, you know it's not real. It just Nobody's voice could be like this. I, the, the first time you're watching, you're like, is she doing an accent? I can't really tell. I don't Who know. Who talks like this? It's like, yes. Oh, oh. You know, it's, I love you. Yeah, it's, it's certainly like dramatic. So crazy. But I, yeah, there's like a seductive tone to it. She's disoriented and confused as to what happened. She says she has no memory. She claims to have never been inside the art gallery when Scotty brings it up at one point. So she's almost like disassociating. Which I guess that whole thing is supposed to keep pushing this possession thing. Like she doesn't know that this stuff is happening. But it does seem like at some point like they could just give up the possession thing because he's in now. They've got him. Yeah, I guess they just want there to be some unexplainable reason that she commits suicide. Gavin was like, no, this is such a great idea. We just have to keep going with it. <laughs> but they managed to have a somewhat reasonable first conversation together, despite the extenuating circumstances of their meeting, where she jumped into the bay. She doesn't really seem to know why. Yeah, I mean, she's... And she also woke up naked in his bed. Right, despite all that quick to feeling comfortable in his apartment. Gavin calls, and while Scotty takes that call in another room, Madeline slips away when he's distracted. I do yeah, love that like when night. she's gone, just sitting in her place is that green pillow. That's right. Just really hammering the green home at this point. Well, yeah, he's wearing the green now. Yeah, he's got the green sweater on, meaning he's wrapped up in her bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> you and I as viewers like went and changed into green <laughs> It's revealed by Gavin over the phone. I love how he just throws this in. He's like, Madeline is 26. That's the same age that Carlotta committed suicide. I know. That's what I'm saying. He can't let this go. (laughs) He might as well just be like, I know she's going to kill herself. (laughs) (laughs) I just know it. Midge happens to be driving by conveniently and sees Madeline leaving Scotty's apartment in just a super cringy moment where she's talking to herself <laughs> drives her car into a wall <laughs> was it fun johnny o yeah was it was she a ghost Ugh. okay hey, midge come on the next day scotty follows madeline again only this time she ends up leading him back to his own apartment and so then he has to no, casually pretend that he just happened to be getting home <laughs> from where i mean it's hard to explain like what his life is She's in the middle of leaving a note for him. There's some flirting, some meaningful stares, and he actually starts reading the note right in front of her as they're standing there on his little porch. Oh, yeah, that would have been sweet if she said something embarrassing. (laughs) He says, I hope we will, too, and sort of, like, looks up from the note, and she says, what? And then he, like, gestures to the note. She, like, writes all this stuff, like, I thought it was really creepy and you overstepped when you took off my clothes and tried to dry my hair. All right, well, <laughs> just in the middle of the actual dialogue, he says, meet again sometime, and she says, we have. And that's probably one of the more memorable exchanges from the script. The pair spend the day together. They travel to Muir Woods. That's right. And Cypress Point on 17-mile drive. Madeline seems to have some kind of spell that she I'd falls so. into. She goes into a trance. She does that weird thing with the the cross cut of the tree that has the different lines on it signifying yeah. all the time where she's like, here I was born and here I died. Well, she does have that not. mysterious noir femme fatale mystique to her where it's always like she's distracted by something or staring off into the distance. But as the dude, you just can't help but be into it. 
Well, during this like whole sequence, which ends up with them like running towards the ocean at one point, it's almost like she's alternating back and forth between being possessed and not being possessed, which I don't know. I guess you would think like, okay, if she's not actually being possessed, she's probably crazy or something, but it just seems weird that she would fall in and out of it in the middle of conversations and then i don't know i guess you could maybe take it as like she is having this conflict now because she is getting into this dude but is also carrying on with this performance either way her hooks are in deep and she drags scotty along she drops clues like breadcrumbs for scotty to collect and he's driving himself crazy trying to figure out what's happening to her But during all of these long sequences of them together, Gavin seems like a million miles away. Madeline makes a mad dash towards the ocean. It's unclear if she's pretending like she's going to jump in. I don't really know. But Scotty chases her down and grabs her. They embrace and kiss. Just a fiery, passionate moment. The small scenes, the fragments of the mirror. You remember those? Vaguely. What do you remember? There's a, a room. And I sit there alone. Always alone. What else? Grave. Where? I don't know. It's an open grave, and I... I stand by the gravestone looking down into it. It's my grave. But how do you know? I know. But is there a name on the gravestone? No. No, it's it's new and clean and waiting. What else? This part is dream, I think, there. There's a tower and a bell in the garden below. It seems to be in Spain. A village in Spain. It clicks off and it's gone. Well, a portrait. Do you see a portrait? No. If I could just find the key, the beginning, and, and, and put it together... So explain it away. Is the way to explain it, you see. If I'm mad, well, that would explain it, wouldn't it? Madeline! Oh, Scotty. I'm not mad. I'm not mad. I don't want to die. There's someone within me, and she says I must die. Oh, Scotty, don't let me go. I'm here. I've got you. So, yeah, it seems like now they're on the verge of just being in love. But as I said, she's now like losing more and more control. It doesn't seem like it was really a time where that was looked down upon to say that you were in love with someone within like a week. No. (laughs) It seems like the men just sort of decided and then the women just had to like go along with it, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. There might be something to that. I think love probably was just a euphemism for, like, we want to fuck now. <laughs> and so you just have this to This is, kinda, like, the passcode. Yeah, you just kind of have to, like, say these things in order to gain access. 
Scotty goes to visit Midge because she leaves him a message and she makes a huge miscalculation where she reveals to Scotty that she's recreated the Carlotta portrait, Uh-oh. but with her own head on the body. Ugh. I'm not really sure what she was going for here. Yeah, she's misguided, I would say. It doesn't go over well. I guess she's like making fun of it in a way where, like, I don't know. I'm not really sure what she's thinking. Exactly. I don't know. It does come off as strange. But S- Scotty was going to take her out to dinner, but then just sort of can't even really say anything and just keeps saying like, no and then just leaves. Mitch, you're just pathetic. <laughs> and then Midge has like a Philip Seymour Hoffman and Boogie Nights <laughs> style breakdown. Oh, yeah. She's like, idiot, stupid, stupid. Yeah. Which again, Midge, I find to be probably the most relatable character in this movie. Yeah. Just a swing and a miss all yeah, around. Really? Johnny. Oh, it's not funny, Mitch. Johnny? No. Johnny, I just thought... Uh-uh. No. Uh... Let's make that movie some other night. following morning madeline shows up at scotty's door unannounced she tells him about her nightmare i know gavin has set up this whole thing and he's got us buying at this point that the carlotta possession thing is really dictating madeline's life but are you not getting suspicious at all scotty i mean you're now spending every day with her well i guess it's the delusion of when you're in love you just want the other person to be in love too that's true And so he's allowing himself to buy into it. Yeah. She tells him, quote, it was the tower again and the bell and the old Spanish village. She just keeps saying this stuff, hoping that Scotty will identify it himself, which is what happens. And this place that she's describing turns out to be something that Scotty identifies as the Mission San Juan Batista, which, of course, happens to be the childhood home of Carlotta. Oh, yeah. Scotty drives her there, and she's doing the whole Carlotta's memories thing. (laughs) And they end up declaring their love for each other and kiss. And while they're there, Madeline then suddenly runs into the church. Well, she's very distracted during the kissing. Her eyes keep leering off towards the church. Yeah, she's got to get in that church. She runs up this bell tower, which I think in real life had already burned down a long time ago, but they sort of uh, recreated it. In heels, too, if I remember correctly. Well, yeah. Seems kind of impractical for this wild staircase. Scotty tries to follow her up these stairs into the bell tower. Just a sad showing from Scotty, really. But he becomes stuck on the steps thanks to his acrophobia, his overwhelming fear of heights. I think we get two of the vertigo shots here. Yeah. He looks down twice. And then through a window opening, he sees... Madeline plunged to her death after hearing a scream. <laughs> Which, up as from a the viewer, top. you're like, that was quick. You yeah. know what I mean? It seems like she just barely got through that top door, and is, it almost seems like she's on the other side of the bell tower flying out. Well, there's probably, I think at the top, there's like 
Yeah, he used to go sure. From all the sides. I know, but it's well, they like, needed it to be the one that he was going to see. Right. He needed to be the witness. Yeah. But a lot of small details that Gavin really needed to go right for his plan to work out. Well, yeah, it's an economy of words and motions and, and movements to make this all somehow perfectly work. It's a master plan <laughs> that is almost flawless. <laughs> yeah. Uh, except, of course, maybe the one jarring error in the movie, which is why would he ever let someone who knows what happened live? Yeah. He just leaves and is like, yeah, this will be fine. <laughs> of course, that doesn't make any sense, but whatever. The shot of the body falling past the window is like hilarious. It's, pro- you know, I oh, would yeah. say definitely like a dummy or something, but it's just like this dead weight, like just flies right by. Well, you almost wonder if you mentioned Scorsese earlier, Martin Sheen in The Departed goes flying out of a window. <laughs> Probably not. The death is declared a suicide. Gavin does not fault Scotty, but Scotty has a mental breakdown. He ends up being clinically depressed. He ends up in a sanitarium. There's a bizarre technicolor, sometimes animated dream sequence that feels like it's almost out of like some early Disney film like Fantasia or Dumbo or something. A lot of different colors flashing around. Yeah, it's a sequence that does feel atypical to at least the Hitchcock movies that I've seen. It's a return to that psychedelic feel from the opening credits, which sort of predates most psychedelic aesthetic that we would be familiar with. Of course, Midge is Scotty's only visitor and friend while he recovers. Yeah, I guess we should have seen that coming. He's almost catatonic. He doesn't speak or react, although that could partially be due to the fact that he's just annoyed with Midge. (laughs) He's like completely normal when she's not around. Yeah, it does feel like she's not making the situation better. I can say that. Her heart is certainly in the right place. You got to give her credit for continuing to try. But I I don't know. I'm sensing an annoyance even from a catatonic Scotty. Yeah, and of course, even if he wasn't in this current mental state, there would still be that embarrassment of your own emotions and losing control of your emotions for someone who immediately killed themselves. (laughs) Yeah, it is kind of a rough outing. And was married, and you were like dragged into this, and it's sort of unbecoming, and it's... A crippling one-two punch after what yeah. happened with the policeman at the beginning of the film. It is interesting, before the sequence, how he just kind of scurries off from the scene of the crime. Yeah. Almost sheepishly, I would say. The aftermath of the suicide at the bell tower is one of the glaring holes in the story that never quite makes sense to me. Because, of course, once we find out the truth, it'll be hard to explain why nobody noticed anything amiss. And we'll, yeah. we'll we'll get to that in a minute. Eventually, Scotty is released. Unclear how much time has passed. I'm going to say a year, maybe less. Hard to tell. Yeah. No indication. I really. don't know. He goes back to his apartment. It's been empty for some period of time. He wanders around, going to places he previously had seen Madeline, often thinking that he does see her. What a life, by the way. This is what you do every day. You get up. You put on a suit, (laughs) and then you go out into the world hoping to bump into this chick again that is dead, from what you know at this time. There's a few false alarms where he thinks he sees her only to discover it's just his mind playing tricks on him. It ends up being someone else. Maybe you are supposed to take it that he knows something was amiss from this whole thing. 
But that's not revealed on screen, certainly. But No, I don't know about that. I just think he's sort of dazed. He's just hung up on this still. Yeah, he, I d- mean, he can't rationalize what happened. How quick would you be back in that psychiatric ward if people are finding out that this is how you're spending your time? Well, I don't know. <laughs> Midge would be like planning an intervention. I mean, they may only hold you against your will if you're a danger to yourself and others. That's true. I guess he's not bothering anybody. One day, Scotty spots a woman in a green dress who reminds him of Madeline. Her hair is different, and there's something a little off or different about her face, but there's still a strong resemblance. He follows her all the way to her hotel room where there's an awkward confrontation. So we were just like casually re-watching this right before we started recording. I made you rewind this part because... I think when you're paying attention upon repeated viewings, when she's coming up the street, there does seem to be like that flash of a moment where she sees Scotty and reacts very startled. Briefly, yeah. yeah. There's a brief jolt before she it is quick though puts the mask back on. This woman identifies herself as Judy Barton from Salina, Kansas, which is a place that I've actually been to. <laughs> For <laughs> some reason, weird. yeah. She does most of the talking when they're standing at the door of her hotel room. He's adamant that he needs to talk to her to find out about her. She's sort of trying to brush him off. And she tries to go about proving her identity over and over in different ways with driver's licenses, etc. <laughs> Scotty's in this like almost yeah, I, I, trance or daze I mean, about come on. This. He is pressing a bit much on this. Going right to her apartment door almost like demanding to come in and that she go on a date with him at first she's kind of harsh when he first shows up at the door she's basically calling it like it is without saying as much as like what are you doing creep you just show up at my door and i know what you want basically yeah i think okay so to the audience it's sort of eerie they do a decent job of making judy look like madeline but you could buy that they were maybe two different people. It's very hard to tell. The hair is completely different. The makeup's done different. The voice However, is certainly different. And the voice is completely different. But if you she were does this look person... Different. I mean, she does look different, for sure. I think, though, if you're Scotty and you're staring into her face and you're looking at her eyes and her teeth and things that are just, like, unchangeable in 1958... Yeah. I just think that you are probably having a mental breakdown again. Sure. Unless you're coming up with how this is possible. Like, I unless guess you're so, putting the pieces together. I mean, if they were, their period of time was what, over a week, maybe like a couple weeks total of like from him following her to the death. And then whatever this period of time is that it's been since then, I mean, you know. Yeah, that's you could what, start Your memory maybe that's where the, the, uh, the time frame could have come in handy is to let us know like how much time has passed. True. Yeah. But either way, you have Kim Novak here in essentially a dual role and she's using a different voice and it's the genius of her performance i think that makes this movie what it is because the eventual revealed plot is so complicated and weird and almost illogical like why would anyone ever go to these lengths to do something that doesn't seem like it needs to be this complicated i agree but when you have this performance at the center of it, you can sort of buy Scotty's character becoming obsessed with her. Oh, yeah. And then recognizing her but not being sure enough. And it's sort of like 
how you have to suspend disbelief with a lot of that Shakespeare stuff where characters are sure. dressing like women or men and no one recognizes them somehow or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and you're like, okay. But yeah, they do a good job here of disguising her just enough and the change of the voice and everything. I think so. I think it works. She it does seem, you know, not to be disrespectful about it, but somewhat like a, a much schlubbier version of Kim Novak. Yeah, she's got a little bit of a southern twang to her voice. Not really, but just more of like a regular person's voice. It's I can not this say, yeah, Salina, Kansas, not quite the allure of a uh, San Francisco. Eventually, Judy agrees to have dinner with Scotty, and there's just so much green in all of these scenes. The green in her hotel room. Oh, yeah, just a sea of green at this point. The green that she wears during various scenes here. Just a lot of color indicators to the audience as to what's going on. But right after Scotty leaves, when they had these plans to go out, that's when oh, yeah. it's revealed to the audience what's happening. There's a quick flashback which provides another perspective of Madeline's death. It reveals that Judy was the person that Scotty knew as Madeline Elster. She was impersonating Gavin's wife as part of a murder plot. When she had reached the top of the bell tower on that fateful day, Gavin was already there waiting to throw his actual wife from the top. And we'll learn later that his wife was already dead with a broken neck. Yeah, it seems crazy, the plan. Gavin, I don't know when he broke her neck, but... It just seems kind of nuts that he's just standing there at the top of this bell tower holding this body. How did he get up there with his wife already dead? How does no one see him? Oh, lugging that body up those stairs? Yeah. No elevator. Or maybe she was alive and then he killed her at the top of the bell tower. Honey, let's go see this view. I don't know. It's it's hard to understand. And how did they get out of there without anyone seeing them? Because clearly Gavin and the fake Madeline would be up there. And it's such a huge gamble to believe that Scotty wouldn't be able to ascend the steps just because of the incident that happened. This is almost a a plan that Zach Morris would be impressed with. (laughs) The execution, dead on. And it is reminiscent of Basic Instinct because it seems like Sharon Stone's character targets Michael Douglas's character because of the past trauma. And then she exploits that in a way which is the same idea of what Gavin's doing here. Sure. It's so crazy. So then, okay, Judy drafts a letter to Scotty explaining her involvement. Gavin had deliberately taken advantage of Scotty's acrophobia to substitute his wife's freshly killed body in the apparent, quote, suicide jump. But ultimately, Judy rips up the letter and continues the charade because she actually does love Scotty. So she doesn't want to reveal herself because she's afraid of what will happen. So here we go. Hitchcock famously was not happy with this scene and the early reveal, ordering it to be cut after showing the film to test audiences. And to be fair, in the original source material, the novel, they do not have this early reveal. But this means the flashback and the writing of the letter. Yeah, there's no reveal until the end. However, the president of Paramount, Barney Balaban ordered the letter writing scene to be restored. And there's been a lot of debate on both sides of this topic. I actually think it's unique that it's in there that early. I like it as well. About a half an hour of this film left. I like it as well. And I think the reveal, a, you get kind of like an unexpected twist at a time where you wouldn't be ready for it to happen. But then there's still enough mystery left for the rest of the movie. You know what I mean? The way that he's acting 
how manic he is and like trying to control her and what is he even trying to do i guess try to get this life back and he feels like he has this path to get there i think that there's like enough there left that it's a well-placed twist yeah i think it's cool that it's there it definitely changes your perception of novak's performance for the rest of the movie i guess the thing that's Sucks. If there is one part that I view a little bit negatively about it, it would be more that if you're not sure (laughs) that this is Madeline, that could carry on for some time. Yeah, which is why I think this movie has grown in esteem, because it actually is something that changes after the first time you see it. And so your perception of the things are different. In 1958, if you're seeing this in the theater, you may not be sure if that's the same woman. You're like, I think that's her. I don't know. That's kind of the way I felt when I was. But then they pull it out from under you and they're like, oh, yeah, it's definitely her. Yeah. And you're like, oh, okay. So it does sort of jolt you. So what then? Yeah, it jolts you the first time and you're like, uh, okay. But the more time you watch it, you start to pick up on different subtleties and the performances and different nuances to the story and how it all plays out. I don't know. I do think that in modern times, there is too much of an emphasis on revealing everything at the end as if that's somehow this grand explanation that will make everything make sense and sometimes that can work in a movie but a lot of times it just feels like way too random and dumb and I think that that would be the danger with this movie is if they don't reveal until the very end what this whole thing was you'd be like what (laughs) yeah really right but when you do it here it changes your focus because then you are like well then okay what is left i don't what is it going to happen next i'm i'm not sure and it sort of de-emphasizes the weird twist that might be hard for you to buy if it's all just thrown in your face in the last five seconds well i think so much about the second half of this movie is just about like the scotty character and these issues that he's having and what he's trying to do I, i just feel like that's what the movie is about from that point on and not necessarily about this murder plot and like what her involvement was yeah I agree with that. That night in her hotel room, the green neon sign that pours in the green light through Judy's curtains, Kim Novak just sitting there in profile with the green all around her as Scotty makes his plea to spend more time with her. That is the moment of the film for me. It's the image that I always associate with the movie. It just looks really cool. Oh, I'd say so, yeah. (laughs) And I think... An infinite amount of yeah. movies have tried to emulate this look. You're 100% buying Scotty's desperation. There were an infinite amount of film noirs between the 40s, maybe even into the 30s, the 50s, the 60s. And Hitchcock, who wasn't always making like a standard noir film, just, just like occasionally dabbles in it and fucks around and makes something that mm-hmm. <laughs> almost all of them would have wanted, which right. is this moment. It just epitomizes the whole genre in a few frames. So they become almost like a couple, but Scotty can't <laughs> shake his obsession. Yeah. Although she's like a, a willing participant in his problems. Because she knows the truth and That's she true. loves him, but she doesn't really know what to do. She has to be afraid that like if she keeps going down this road, he's going to figure it out. Yeah. Because he coerces her into changing her clothes <laughs> to match Madeline's and then eventually her hair to be dyed blonde to But look it feels like, like she would be it's like she does such a good job of staying in character during the Madeline sequences. I'm not talking about Kim Novak, I'm talking about yeah. the character of Judy does such a good job of staying in the Madeline character in the first half of the movie. It seems like she has some abilities to spin some webs or put up some smoke if she wants to, but 
she's just kind of going along with this. There's this tension as if Judy just wants him to move on so they can be happy in this newfound future that they could have, but he's incapable. She just wants to love him, and she's frustrated by the idea that she already got him to love her. Oh, right. But he's hung up on her, but a different version of her, and it's sort of this thing that they can't get past. And he's got this anxiety and like mania about it. It's just this rush that he's got, and he's just trying to put this back together. And I do think that is part of the lesson here, that this is just not a good idea to like live like this. Create new moments. <laughs> Don't get hung up on this stuff. Well, when she does sort of act insulted by this idea, it is almost played as like a, a cutesy little joke, but... It is legitimate. She's like, you want me to be someone else. The only reason that she's not actually more offended is because she knows, she knows that it's what her. The, yeah. <laughs> but over time, Judy is essentially transformed back into Madeline with the blonde hair, with the gray suit, with the green dress. And that's the thing. At this point, okay, there's no mystery here anymore for Scotty. I mean, it, it, it's her. And eventually, when the last step happens after she has the blonde hair... She goes into the bathroom to pin her hair back the same way, per Scotty's request, of course. (laughs) And she emerges from the bathroom with this sort of eerie mist, this green mist around her. She does look like a ghost intentionally here. And she looks exactly like Madeline did, and now she's back from the dead. The kicker would have been if she would have just launched into the voice, (laughs) and then he he probably would have fallen out the window. Oh, (laughs) yeah. That would have been a better ending. (laughs) Just like, what? (laughs) But he seems convinced that he's able to just replicate a different woman because he found the perfect canvas, which is a woman that looks exactly like her. Normal. (laughs) Just normal stuff. One night before going out to dinner, Scotty notices Judy wearing the necklace portrayed in Carlotta's painting and all of a sudden realizes what an absolute dumb fuck he's been. (laughs) just an idiot finally yeah <laughs> because once he gets her to dye the hair and she pins it up oh it and looks, she's wearing the her. same clothes yeah it's like dude this come is on. without question it's her she was putting out a voice that was the only piece she couldn't get <laughs> somehow he starts connecting dots to things that like even as the viewer i'm not even entirely sure how he gets because well he, he was a detective at one point yeah but they don't explain where he gets this yeah because yeah. he's just all of a sudden thinking Judy had been... He's got that intuition, though. Gavin's mistress cast aside just like Carlotta after he had gotten what he wanted, which was to have his wife killed and to get her money. So Scotty, without really revealing what he knows, drives Judy towards the old mission, not letting on anything, being amiss. But as she realizes where they're headed, she clearly starts panicking a little bit, like, I don't know what's going on. And he says... One final thing I have to do, and then I'll be free of the past. They arrive at the mission. She's reluctant. He's adamant. Oh, yeah. She's getting scared. This is like a a role-playing situation. (laughs) He tells her that he must reenact the event that led to his madness, so he forces her to ascend the stairs. I know she's kind of going along with everything at this point. This does seem nuts. I feel like at some point she's got to put her foot down. He is, like, overpowering her. I mean, That's true. She yeah. can't really do anything. He's sort of, like, physically pushing her up the stairs. And he basically just reveals that he finally understands that Judy and Madeline are the same person during this 
melee up the steps. That's right. And so she admits her deceit, and Scotty takes her all the way to the top, conquering his fear of heights. What a way to do it. Yeah, and he puts all the pieces together. You were Gavin's lover. You helped him get the money. Then he gets the money and casts you aside. Completely unbelievable that he would (laughs) let her live with this knowledge. I guess Gavin has fled to Europe during this period. Yeah, when you have a revelation like this, though, I mean, if you're a Scotty, are you just, am I the biggest fool in the world? Like, how embarrassed would you be? Yeah. Although I would be like, as he keeps saying, like, why did you pick me? Why did you pick, like, I don't understand. He's still not, like, getting it. And she has to basically tell him, like, well, it was your accident. He knew that you wouldn't be able to follow me up the steps. We needed you to witness the suicide and thus sign off on it. And it would be closed case at that Perfect point. Perfect target. It does seem, like, insane. <laughs> I know that. A lot of people get caught murdering their wives, but it just seems like you would be able to <laughs> come up a with a better positive way to do it. world we live in. Like, <laughs> what a glowing review for for marriage! Constantly a story <laughs> in movies, but also just like something that happens or people getting like caught, like attempting it. Judy says that Gavin paid her off in order to kill his wife and get her fortune. Judy begs Scotty to forgive her because she loves him. She could have run away. But she stayed because of him, which is true. Oh, yeah. It's not like he's been with her every second since he first confronted her. So she could have fled. I give Judy a lot of credit for her dedication to this relationship. It's unclear why she would even really like him. Right. I don't know. I certainly don't. seems like a loser. Yeah. And then in the ultimate anti-hero, or I guess I should say anti-heroic moment of Scotty's time in this film, he basically is just like, all right. And he does pull her close and embrace her, and it seems like he is going to just forgive her for this. Yeah. It seems like we can have a normal relationship now. Yeah, things will be fine. Right. This is where it happened. And the two of you hid back there and waited for it to clear, and then you sneaked down and drove into town. Is that it? And then you were his girl, huh? Oh, what happened to you? What happened to you? Did he ditch you? Judy, with all of his wife's money and all that freedom and that power, and he ditched you. What a shame. And he knew it was safe. He knew you couldn't talk. Did he give you anything? Some money. And the necklace. Carlotta's necklace. There was where you made your mistake, Judy. You shouldn't keep souvenirs of a killing. You shouldn't have been... You shouldn't have been that sentimental. Mercy. 
shadowed figure rises from the tower's trapdoor, startling Judy, who steps backwards oh, no. <laughs> and falls to her death in the same way that they threw the dead body of Gavin's actual wife. And it turns out just to be a nun who was investigating hearing voices. Up That's there. right. Yeah. It's almost like a fake out of like some scary moment. Bad timing nothing. for that nun. <laughs> yeah. And that's it. It ends on such a weird moment of him conquering his fear and and sort of reclaiming his life in a way. But at the same time, he loses this person that he loves. Where's this heading for him now? I don't know. Do we count the added scene for the foreign censors with Scotty and Midge at the end? He's such a dismissive ass to Midge that I, I mean, I just find that to be such a hateable quality. Well, him. isn't that the lesson of the movie? It is. That you should just settle. <laughs> it is. Yeah, absolutely. It's Why hard would to you... argue. Don't get yourself caught up in this kind of mess. Why would you chase after someone you actually want? Right. <laughs> when you can just have Midge. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Midge. <laughs> <laughs> Although, I don't know. Is there any sort of criminal investigation here? I feel like Scotty is in a position that this is going to be hard to explain. Did the nurse actually see her just fall? You mean the nun? Sorry, nun. Yeah. I think he's got a witness as to what happened. Okay. Is the nun under investigation? (laughs) These two were in cahoots. (laughs) I don't know. It doesn't matter. The story's over. I know, but just the on-site investigator, it's like, yeah, I know this is kind of a crazy coincidence that I was here for this woman's death twice. Well, he's a former policeman. Yeah. The implication in the alternate ending that they used in Europe, I guess, is that he would explain what happened and then they would pursue All all the way. Okay, yeah. But, yeah, I I don't know. It's sort of a bummer ending for poor Judy, who seemed to be more of just a pawn. It's kind of like the ending to Poison Ivy, where it's like, are we sure the right people are being punished at the end of this movie? That's right. But I can see why people really obsess over the movie and why it's sort of grown in stature over time. I think it's sort of ludicrous to insinuate that it's the greatest film ever made. I, I don't really think that. Yeah, but you can definitely see the influence that it's had on oh, just for so sure. many yeah. other directors and certainly movies. Yeah, I think visually and in terms of like the direction and the and the camera stuff and the cinematography and everything, it is a huge towering achievement. I do think that the plot and the story is so insane that it seems crazy to think that this would for be sure. considered the best movie. But, you know, it's one of those things that's heavily debated and i'm sure as time goes by different things will yeah creep up because older critics die out and newer ones come in and then the discourse changes and someday they'll probably be arguing that like captain marvel is the greatest (laughs) (laughs) what a world that'll be (laughs) folks that'll do it for vertigo i think we can probably safely say that there will be more Hitchcock in our futures Surely. on the show. Yes. It's fun to step back in time every now and again and explore this stuff where so much of modern film or film that came after came from, if that makes any sense. What are you doing? What? What? Vincent stopped making picks. Well, how am I going to know what movies to see? We have a wide variety of gene picks. Gene's trash. I'm Gene. So let's do recommendations before we say goodbye. Do you have any? I do have week? one. Another older movie set in San Francisco 10 years later. I had never seen, and I brought this up on other recommendations 
where HBO Max and like the Turner Classic movie section of it and just the wealth of great older movies that are available on there. So I watched this for the first time starring Steve McQueen, Bullet, directed by Peter Yates. Wow. Yeah. Super cool movie. I mean, I was, it was 1968, but it was definitely heading into that 70s era of filmmaking and just the way that, and I know I recommended uh, Friends of Eddie Coyle before, which was the same director, just such a cool stylistic action movie. And I'm not, I've never been big on car chases. Like cars is probably like the thing that I'm like least interested in the world, but San Francisco, great, (laughs) great for car chases. Just with the way that those roads are there with the hills are like so steep. And I don't know. It's just such a different way of making action movies than, than like what we see now, just like the authentic feeling to the characters. Steve McQueen feels more just like a real dude compared to like, Jason Statham or Vin Diesel. <laughs> He's How not like you. drinking Corona at the end. <laughs> yeah, I think that San Francisco is like one of the cooler settings for films, but it's almost better that it's it's sort of underused because you don't want it to be like played out. Yeah, it's nice that it crops up every now and again. But yeah, I mean, I'm sure that there's occasionally film buffs that listen to this show and it's just like, how can you consider yourself a movie fan and you've never seen some of this stuff? Well, I don't have an excuse, okay? If it's from the 80s on, there's a good chance that I've seen it. If it's pre-80s, I just didn't watch a lot of that stuff growing up. So I'm seeing more well, and more I of it. Well, I think this is uh, this podcast is a journey. It is. For that's everyone. right. Yeah. <laughs> so shut up. <laughs> no, I think that's what a lot of our listeners tend to like about it. Yeah. That we're sort of on this journey together. We have probably some knowledge that your average person movie fans might not have but there's also some gaps some holes in our for sure (laughs) i'm trying i'm trying to get caught up on the the classics so i have two recommendations this week one is just a piggyback on some other stuff that we've already talked about if you have hbo max you have access to just a treasure trove of alan partridge material another big hbo max appearance on recommendations is that where bullet was yeah that's right hbo max is great it is it has so many movies and so much cool stuff i wish it was just like set up better they should like advertise some of the stuff that they have yeah there's there is so much great stuff on it i I feel like the interface for it could be a little bit better but i wouldn't have even known that they had all of this alan partridge material if i wouldn't have heard it mentioned on another podcast right right and someone was like oh yeah they have all of this alan partridge stuff i was like oh holy shit And so I'm going to recommend this show called I Am Alan Partridge. It's not the first in chronological order, but I think it's maybe the best place to start if you want to dive into this character that Steve Coogan has played since the early 90s. It's a sitcom-esque show. It does have a laugh track, which is sort of weird and jarring, but the first season was in 1997. I think the second season was in 2002, maybe something like that. The first season, Alan lives in a hotel. It's very funny. The second one, he lives in a mobile home next to a house that's being built, like his new house or something. Just hilarious stuff. It's unbelievably funny. I do funny. enjoy the Alan Partridge character. And then you can move into some of the other material that they have on there. There's several other shows. There's specials and stuff like that. And previously on the podcast, I recommended the 2013 movie, which in America is just called Alan Partridge, and I think you can probably find that streaming for free somewhere. That's right. So yeah, I've just been really spending a lot of time with that character 
on HBO Max. Yeah, I need to. I need to dive and in. Rewatching many things. Yeah, I, I've watched some sporadically, but I, I need to dive in. There was some stuff. I, I ordered a pizza and I was just watching something by myself. One of the on Partridge things, and I almost choked. I was laughing so hard, and I was like, "Oh man, I got to be careful. I live by myself." Yeah, that's two right. minutes later, it happened again. <laughs> You you're just so caught off guard by some of the things he says. Oh, it's man. just so funny. Wow. It's the best. Yeah. Although like I could very much envision that being your death. Oh yeah. Choking on pizza, watching, watching Alan, Alan Partridge. Partridge. Yeah. My other recommendation this week is a film that you won't really be able to find streaming anywhere, unfortunately. How about that? But you will be able to pick it up in America on Blu-ray released from the Criterion Collection. Or if you want to go for the 4K Ultra, which is region free, you can pick up the Arrow release. And that would be Crash. Who? No, not the controversial Best Picture winner from 2005. I'm talking about the 1996 David Cronenberg film. The better one. Uh, Yeah, way better. On the last podcast, I recommended a film by... His son, Brandon, called Possessor, which is an awesome movie. Crash is rated NC-17, and it's very disturbing. (laughs) It's about people that have almost like a car crash sexual fetish, and they recreate car crashes, like famous crashes where celebrities died, like James Dean or Jane Mansfield. And they have a lot of weird sex, and there's a lot of nudity, stars. These are our kind of people. James Spader, Holly Hunter, uh, I I can't remember the woman's name. I'm she's actually like the main woman. She's the one from the game. Oh yeah. It's like Deborah Cara Unger or something like that. I might Sounds right. that might be wrong. And Elias Coteus is in it. Oh. And Rosanna Arquette. It's just a weird movie. The vibe is weird. The music is sort of haunting and memorable. Yeah. The story is completely insane. I haven't seen it, but I was going to just buy the Criterion when it came out. You should. It's NC-17, but like, I think a lot of... I mean, there is some graphic sex in it, but I think a lot of it is just because of how deviant it is. Yeah. And it's weird. I don't know. I don't know know that it would... I'm always interested in a Cronenberg movie. Because I think like if it had just been a matter of like the nudity, there's probably a couple of pretty easy cuts, but instead it's like... Yeah. And there's some like real graphic dirty talk too but like yeah i could see you could see it getting that rating just because the idea is a little out there for people probably yeah it's disturbing yeah it's like it's just a weird movie and i I, it's hard to even like compare it to anything that's like how weird it is yeah (laughs) it is so weird like you just kind of like imagine like working with someone that has this disorder what like what is that life (laughs) i can't sit here and say that that seems like a healthy fetish to have Oh, no, no. I yeah, mean, that's right. a big part of <laughs> yeah. the thing. It's like it's very dangerous and horrifying. But yeah, I think if you have something like that in your life, then it sort of becomes like an obsession and, oh, yeah. and it just sort of dominates your whole life. Like you're not able to just be normal. I would at other say points. it would be I would find that tough. It's weird that Spader is in that and secretary. It definitely seems like he has like a, a darker side to these characters <laughs> where you're just like experimenting with some weird stuff. Well, Spader is just like such a villain ever since he played Rip in Lesson Zero. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just think like if, if they would have really given us that NC-17 Lesson Zero that we deserve, Oof. <laughs> he would have quite a run on his That's hands. That's right. 
But yeah, so if if you have a need to check out a weirder movie if you haven't seen it before. A need? <laughs> Crash was I do. a fun watch for me. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so that'll do it for Vertigo. As we talked about at the beginning, we are back in action now after a little hiccup with the scheduling, which is actually my fault for a change. Usually it's something we can easily blame on Matt. Right. This time I As was like, like I don't do. think I'm going to be ready. I wanted to give Vertigo my full attention with the notes. I didn't think it was going to happen. Yeah, I have to say I'm always excited to get that text just because nothing to do with the show. Just yeah, I know. I'm prone to way. if anybody cancels anything, I'm just like, I know it's glorious. The minutes back to do nothing are just so great. Yeah. So cherished. Coming up, we're going to do a couple of listener requests. As I said, we will be doing Give Us a Seconds and TV-themed episodes again, so it won't just be an endless stream of movies. But yeah, we're going to hit some listener requests for the next couple weeks, and then we got another listener request in March, I think, lined up. So if you have something you want to request us to do on the show, tweet at us, at GreatestPod on Twitter. You can follow us there. Make sure you're subscribed. Give us a rating review on Apple Podcasts. Continue to spread the word. I think that's it. I think that's it. <laughs> Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon.
Real nice meeting you, Kenny. Watch it, prick. Watch it, ass blood. <laughs>